Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we speak with federal NDP leader Jugmeet Singh about the parliamentary session that just wrapped up and three months in, how his party's deal to keep the Liberal government in power is working out. We hear about how malls across the country could be reimagined and repurposed to better serve the communities they're in and the people who live nearby. Fifty years ago this month, a photo of a young girl burned in a napalm attack became one of the most vivid and shocking examples of the horrors of the Vietnam War. She now lives in Canada, and we hear how she turned an image that she long loathed into a source of strength. But first, the U.S. Supreme Court overturns the landmark Roe v. Wade ruling, removing constitutional protections for abortion that had stood for nearly 50 years. We get analysis of the decision, and we look at the impact both in the U.S. and here at home. Well, we pay a lot of attention to what happens in the U.S. on this side of the border, and Roe versus Wade, the decision today, of course, is a monumental one. It crosses borders. A very different story here, though, of course, abortion is legal in Canada, or at least allowed. In 1988, our Supreme Court struck down a law that banned abortions, except in cases where the mom's life was threatened. Access to abortion, though, is another matter. While abortion is covered under the Canada Health Act, that only means provinces can't make patients pay for the procedure. It doesn't obligate province to provide them. Well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is promising to defend abortion rights in this country and around the world. He called today's U.S. Supreme Court decision, quote, horrific. In the aftermath of Roe versus Wade back in 1973, the U.S. became a destination for Canadian women seeking abortions. Those rules may now be reversed. Well, joining me now with more is Joyce Arthur. She's the executive director of the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben. It's just your initial reaction, I think, after we saw the leaked uh, decision a few months ago. Uh, This may not have been a day that would come as a surprise, but nonetheless, um, what was your initial reaction when you saw the decision? Oh, my heart sank. It was just an awful thing to see first thing in the morning. And... um, it's a really devastating, heartbreaking decision. It's it's going to cause uh, a lot of damage and harm in the U.S. It's really unbelievable because what the Supreme Court has done is take, actually for the first time ever, removed uh, constitutional rights that people have depended on for 50 years. And uh, so it's unprecedented. And um, I've looked briefly at the decision. It's virtually identical to the uh, the draft that was leaked in early May. So they didn't learn any lesson from the outrage. Uh, this is a very partisan decision. Uh, there's a conservative supermajority on the court. Um, they're all Roman Catholics. Um, I think this is a you know religious ideological decision. Um, you know they hated the Roe v. Wade uh, decision and the, the the Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is the companion decision. In 1992, uh, both of them have been overruled. And um, I, I think what's really shocking and enraging is that the, the decision shows just utter disregard, even contempt, you know, for women's rights, for human rights. And uh, it, goes, it reaches back, you know, centuries when women didn't even have rights or the right to vote, uh, you know, as if that standard should be what we should be following today. It's just outrageous. And they've really made, um, you know, women's rights, women's bodies subject to the state, uh, right from the moment of conception. States are free to ban abortion as, as uh, you know, totally. And that's going to be, um, that's going to, that's going to cause deaths, actually. Coming back across the border, I mean, it's often, um, it's often difficult on the Canadian side to look over to the U.S. and 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 sort of draw figure out what the impact might be. But where do you see the impact of this Roe v. Wade decision uh, in this country? 
Well, you know, I mean, we're lucky in Canada that we, we don't have any uh, laws limiting abortion, but we do have access problems. There's been gaps, longstanding gaps for years, which we've you know, been working on and things are better, but there's still a long ways to go. Uh, access can be pretty good in some of the major cities, but um, really abysmal outside that. So people are having to travel like from rural areas and from the north and uh, often trying to overcome many barriers depending on the province that you're in. So access is probably worse in the prairie provinces and in the Atlantic regions. So then we had the Roe v. Wade decision being overturned and the prospect, uh, the realistic prospect that you know, many Americans are going to be wanting to come up to Canada for abortions. And you know they can. Uh, they can come up here if they have a passport, if they have money, because they have to pay for the procedure. So this is only an option for uh, well-off people, uh, maybe people living close to the border. Uh, but uh, even a small number of Americans coming up here can really overwhelm our healthcare system. And we're not ready. We already don't have enough access for Canadians. And uh, we've been trying to use this moment to pressure the Liberal government, the provinces to like, increase funding. We need an infusion of funding. And not just for two years or three years. They have given some funding, the Liberal government, which is great. It's a start. But we need permanent increased funding so that provinces can expand sexual and reproductive health care across Canada, including abortion care. And we need more training of providers as well. And yet this government often talks about him. Even today, the Prime Minister was out uh, expressing his disdain and his shock at this decision. Um, this government certainly talks a lot about access to abortion. Is it not doing enough to meet that? Well, um, I mean, I don't know. I the Liberal government has done a lot compared to, say, previous governments, and, and standing up and, and supporting uh, abortion rights, reproductive rights is, is a great thing. It sends a strong symbol. But yeah, we do need more action, and uh, I think we are starting to see a bit more of it. Uh, I noticed uh, today uh, when I was listening to the news that Trudeau was... He was, wasn't just saying, we're going to protect legal rights. It's a woman's right to choose. He actually went a bit further and said, we're going to expand access across Canada. And I thought, oh, good. Let's hope he, he'll stick to his word and actually that he's been listening uh, to us and other pro-choice groups uh, and that we will see a, a big expansion of uh, abortion access in Canada. Um, when, when we think of, of what's happened, I mean, this is clearly going to put uh, give momentum to, group, to conservative groups who've been fighting for this in the U.S. for a very long time. Uh, for those, for listeners who may not know how that those movements cross boundaries, cross borders, do they? And what may this do to the uh, to the to the movement here in Canada? Good question. I mean, Canada and the U.S. are very different and pol politically, and certainly we do have an anti-abortion movement up here. Uh, I think they're uh, a lot, you know, I call them like a lot meeker and milder than the American uh, anti-abortion movement, which has uh, been, you know, unfortunately very, very successful in their decades-long campaign to get to this point. They've worked really hard, um, you know, stacking the judiciary and, you know, changing campaign finance laws. Uh, all kinds of things that have really helped their cause. And uh, I mean, they're not going to stop here either. Uh, I mean, um, Mike Pence was just talking today about uh, looking for a federal ban on abortion. And there's also fears that they're going to go after contraception and uh, even like gay marriage and interracial marriage, because they all rest on the right to privacy, which is what uh, Roe v. Wade rested on as well. Uh, now, in Canada, uh, our rights are a lot more secure, uh, I think, legally and uh, uh, socially. I think the population is much more pro-choice and more liberal, more supportive of women's rights, for example. So uh, we're in a better position. And, uh, but, you know, the anti-choice movement is never going to give up. They keep trying. They uh, often try and 
put forward private members' bills in Parliament, for example, to try and restrict abortion in some way or, or undermine abortion rights in some way. And there's no doubt that the anti-choice movement in Canada gets um, uh, support, uh, encouragement and support from the American movement. And, you know, they're, they're watching what's going on down there and hoping to replicate some of the tactics. And sometimes some of the bills that you see up here in Canada are a little bit copycats from bills that you've seen in the U.S. Um, they're just not as successful here in Canada at getting their agenda across. But we, and we want to make sure that we keep it that way. I think one reason that the anti-choice movement has not been successful in Canada is because of the strength of the, the pro-choice movement and the women's rights movement, always fighting back against any encroachment of our rights. So we're going to keep continuing to do that. And hopefully um, the anti-choice movement in Canada will not feel emboldened um, by this, uh, this decision today. Joyce Arthur, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Well, let's quickly head back to the United States now on what has been a historical day there, given the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the uh, decision, the Supreme Court's decision from 1973 that enshrined a woman's right to an abortion across the U.S. It has been overturned today. Hundreds of Americans gathered on Capitol Hill to show their feelings after the decision. People on both sides of the issue remained largely peaceful, save for the occasional shouting match under the eyes of Capitol Police. The one thing that will be very clear about this decision is just how much, because it leaves it up now to the states to decide, uh, individual states, whether abortion is legal or not in each, uh, just how different the country is going to be because about half the country, 25, 26 or so states, it's going to be limited. And other other states, such as California and New York, are going to try to expand uh, the amount of uh, abortion rights on offer so that people from around the country can go there. So you end up with this really strange duality within the U.S. And of course, that has a real impact on those who can least afford to go out of state for these sorts of services. Um, you know, that that is going to be the legacy of this, is you're going to have two different systems in the same country. Um, Joe Biden today talked a bit about that. He uh, said he was stunned by the ruling. The court laid out state laws criminalizing abortion that go back to the 1800s as rationale. The court literally taking America back 150 years. Of course, Biden also warned that the Supreme Court opinion that overturned the constitutionally protected access to abortion could undermine other rights, such as contraception and gay marriage. And we also know that this will impact women who are already marginalized in the U.S. So joining me now with more on this is Zakia Luna. She's a Dean's Distinguished Professor and Scholar, our Dean's Distinguished Professorial Scholar, rather, and Associate Professor of Sociology at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, and the author of Reproductive Rights as Human Rights. Rights, women of Color, and the Fight for Reproductive Justice. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. I, I guess the first, as just, just your reaction to this, I guess we knew when the leak came out that this might be the, the decision, but your reaction now that it is in fact official. Yes. Um, in all honesty, I'm still processing it, <laughs> still on text threads with people, um, and Things have been pointing this way for a long time in the U.S., and um, those of us who also do movement work ha have been planning for this, but it is still shocking to, to have the, the final official word. For Canadians who might understand the impact, this doesn't, in fact, ban abortion, but it certainly means that women in many American states are about to have what little uh, reproductive rights they had as far as access to abortion is concerned, removed. Yes, yes, that is correct. Um, and yes, what it means is that this uh, 
abortion access, abortion decisions will go back to each state. <laughs> uh, and, you know, uh, the U.S. Um, has quite the range of uh, political approaches <laughs> within its states. And uh, there are some states, uh, about 13, that uh, right now the, they had trigger bans in place that if Roe v. Wade was overturned, abortion would immediately start to go back into effect that it was illegal, right? Back to their pre-row um, status. And so, you know, that does take a little bit of time, but there's you know, 13 states that already had that um, on the books uh, without plans for exceptions. And then about another 10 that do have some plans for exceptions regarding rape and incest. And um, others that you know, it's still a bit of a patchwork and somewhere it's going to be completely legal um, and expanded like California, but those states is in the minority. So yeah, um, half the country um, is losing abortion access in the U.S. And, and this goes to, to what you study. Uh, yes. This has a disproportionate impact on certain groups of women over other groups of women. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And um as your listeners <laughs> famously know, um, the U.S.'s healthcare system <laughs> is quite, quite limited <laughs> and very employer-based. And if you're low-income, um, you do rely on your um, federal healthcare, which already had actually restricted access to abortion. Um, and states had the option for low-income people to um, have access to abortion if a state wanted to give their own money, but you know, very few states had actually done that. Um, so low-income folks in particular are going to be impacted, and um, that is, yeah, um, disproportionately people of color, um, women of color, and non-binary folks of color. Um, and so it's going to just make it that much harder for people to access abortions. And the data shows um, people... Uh, once people have made a decision to get an abortion, um, you know, they know their life best. And so they will do what they need to, um, uh, whether that means trying to go to another state and getting the money to do that and crossing state lines or um, trying a self-managed abortion, um, like medication abortion or something. So, um, but yes, uh, it is a shocking dark day uh, in, in the U.S., What's going to happen now? I, I mean, I can only assume there's mm-hmm. a lot, a lot of anger out there. Um, yeah. What happens now? Yeah. So I, I think there's a lot of anger, a lot of sadness. There's also, you know, a lot of confusion um, in that, um, you know, if there happens to be any listeners from the U.S., um, you know, and you have an appointment, don't cancel your appointment. Um, you know, contact the clinic, but um, to make sure, you know, sort of what's going on there. Um, I think. Um, there are, there have been um, so many restrictions on abortion put in place in the U.S. over the past decades, <laughs> really since Roe v. Wade um, was decided, that um, increasingly movements have been learning lessons, right, and building networks and strategies. So um, in the U.S., we do have the National Network of Abortion Funds, about 80 funds, um, throughout the U.S. and Mexico and a couple other countries uh, where people can call and get money, 
for an abortion procedure, they can get a ride to a procedure, they can get accommodation, um, so people can still um, contact those funds or visit INeedAnA.com. And those funds are also going to need more volunteer support. (laughs) So there will be people who are really mobilized and, and really connect even more with their community to see how they can help support the people who are going to be most negatively impacted by this. So um, yeah. how do we get here? I, I mean, I, I realize it's been going on for a very long time. In fact, yeah. probably since the day that the Roe v. Wade was decided yes. 50 years ago, that this has been, uh, this has been under, uh, under threat, but how, how did we get here so quickly? It feels like all of us have not quickly, but to this sort of very definitive decision on what had been, it was such a pivotal piece of legislation or pivotal decision rather. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, uh, and you're absolutely right. Um, really since Roe was decided, um, um, the people who oppose abortion have really been working to overturn Roe, um, uh, starting with the 1976 Hyde amendment that made it such that, um, no federal funding could go to abortion. And, um, people have, they've been working slowly throughout the state legislatures and things have certainly had certainly ramped up since 2010. And we saw increasing numbers of restrictions and then um, increasingly, you know, once there were um, folks leaving the court, <laughs> the Supreme Court, um, you know, it, it, it does make a difference. Uh, um, and as we've seen, um, it makes a difference who is at the Supreme Court level. Um, and I think uh, what's also really important as um the folks in the dissent row is what this really means is that people's lives, right? That they will incur the cost of losing control of their lives um, as quoted. And what's next is also, as they indicated in the dissents, you know, and no one should be confident that this majority is done with its work um, as they named in the decision, right? Uh, They're questioning birth control and same-sex relationships. So, Speaking this half hour with Zakia Luna, she's the Dean's Distinguished Professor, Professorial Scholar and Associate Professor of Sociology at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, and author of Reproductive Rights as Human Rights. We've been discussing uh, the Supreme Court's decision today to overturn Roe v. Wade 50 years uh, after it was passed, after it, that decision was handed down, as well as a, another decision called Casey. Um, so in, in other words, r- rolling back uh, abortion rights in the U.S., at least uh, federal court protection of abortion rights in the U.S., um, what just in terms of, of what the reaction could be for so long, Roe v. Wade was a rallying cry for those who opposed it. Does its does its elimination now become a rallying cry, a unifying cry for those who supported it? Oh, that is a great question. So, so I think something that's really important and and complicated um, for folks is that many folks who are working in sort of a reproductive justice framework, which is also about rights to have children and rights to parent, in addition to rights to not have children, um, have really emphasized that as far as, you know, the U.S., that Roe was always the floor. (laughs) Um, Because what does it mean to make the choice whether or not to move forward with the pregnancy if you don't have the resources to really support your families? And I think that's going to become even more clear for many folks um, who in the U.S. Um, 
that this isn't just about abortion. This is about how you form your families, how you, what healthcare you have access to, right? How you get to decide what you do in your own bedroom as, um, and that's something that, you know, most people in the U.S. would, uh, would agree that they don't think that the government should be in their bedrooms. <laughs> and this decision really puts into question a lot of other decisions, as Justice Thomas indicated. And so um, if there was anyone who hadn't been <laughs> taking notice in the U.S., um, it's it's time to pay even more attention to the courts and the cases that are going to be moving forward around um, contraception and same-sex marriage. And I would say even, you know, for your listeners, you know, who are in Canada, certainly, right, the Morgenthaler decision, um, critically important in Canada regarding abortion access. (laughs) And, you know, these rights are connected. And People who oppose abortion have been saying that for such a long time. And this ruling and the hundred something pages of it <laughs> indicate just how clearly they see all these rights connected and what their next steps are um, and where they're moving next. So that means people need to be doing even more mo- mobilizing and connecting with community and local organizations to protect the rights that remain because rights are always contested and and it's important to keep fighting for what is there. (laughs) I think one of the things that's often difficult for outsiders to understand, perhaps even for people in America to understand is my, my understanding is that support for access to abortion in some form is incredibly high in the U.S. It's disproportionately high in the U.S. Uh, Many people support a woman's right to choose in the U.S. And yet, and yet here we are you know, here we are. And, and I think it's under, difficult to understand sometimes that a minority view uh, becomes a majority law or becomes the law of the land. And, 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 how, do, how, does, and how does that happen? And I guess that, that's sometimes difficult to understand, that, that the courts are used yes. in a way to strike down the will of more of the majority of Americans in favor of a small group of very ardent uh, and vocal minority. Yes, ardent and vocal. And a key thing is well-resourced. Um, resources do matter. And um, when we talk about the importance of states and state legislatures and the relationship to federal legislature and the discussions that legislators have and the work that gets done at state levels, a big chunk of that is about resources. And you know, we have states where people can get license plates that then fund <laughs> um, opposition to abortion, right? So that that is an example, right, of resources that are being provided essentially <laughs> to the opposition that there's not the equivalent in the U.S. Uh, for abortion supporters, right? And so that um, a big part of it is about resources. Um, and, and when a small minority has a high level of resources to really impact the different elections, to really impact the misinformation that is getting out there, when they really are able to mobilize that, it can have such a big impact. And yes, as you say, to go against the will of what, yeah, the polls continue to show. <laughs> because again, uh, when you ask most people, who do you think should get to make a decision about your health care? Should it be your neighbor two doors down or should it be you? They say, 
me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. So, I mean, you've been involved in this for so, for, for, I mean, this is, this is your life's work mm-hmm. in many ways. What for you now, what happens now? Yeah. What happens now um, for me, besides um, a few more interviews <laughs> today yeah. is, um, is, um, you know, I, I do work outside of the Academy that is connected to different grassroots organizations um, and I, I think ultimately movements are about hope. And, and I often even tell my students in my movements classes, even movements I disagree with are about hope. They just have hopes for a different type of country and world than I envision, right? Um, and that means there's also about engagement, though. And so, yes, taking time to have the feelings and the frustrations and the disappointments, um, while also taking solace in the fact that there are so many good people who have been doing work and who are continuing to do work literally right now, who are sending out emails, who are setting up information calls, who are um, taking calls from callers with abortion funds, who are connecting with people in their community or, you know, outside their state to donate um, to those, you know, impacted, particularly impacted states, like in the South and the Midwest and the U.S., right? Um, I, I always think, you know, being connected with community is really important and it will continue to be important because the struggle, as we see, is definitely going to continue. And these these struggles are linked. And so we need to link the communities together. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, the current federal parliamentary session wrapped up this week. You may have noticed uh, they're all off on the barbecue and picnic circuit now. It marked the end of the first months of an agreement between the Liberals and the NDP. You'll remember that as well, announced back in late March. Under that deal, the NDP agreed to support the Liberal government on confidence votes in exchange for cooperation on some of their priorities. Just this week, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, though, was attacking the Liberals over allegations of government interference in the Nova Scotia mass shooting. A report published Tuesday by the inquiry investigating the tragedy includes notes that suggest the RCMP commissioner promised to release information on the weapons used in the rampage to support pending liberal government control gun control legislation. Uh, Jagmeet Singh was quite critical this week. Still, the conservatives have called it a coalition. It's not technically a coalition because the NDP don't have anyone in cabinet, but it certainly is a pretty cozy agreement. They've mocked the NDP for surrendering its role as a watchdog to instead support the party. It spent the last election trying to defeat. Well, with a look back at the last session, the deal with the Liberals, the political interference or the allegations of in that RCMP investigation in Nova Scotia and much, much more. Joining me now is federal NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh. Thanks so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. I guess uh, just your reaction to the big news of the day, which of course is the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade and what impact it could have here. Uh, What is your reaction to that and how should Canadians look at that judgment and, and then abortion rights in our own country? It's a, it's a horrible decision, and I can't imagine what it feels like for people in the States right now to know that fundamental human rights have been attacked, the right to choose what to do with your body has been attacked, and it's been an attack on women specifically as well. It is just unimaginable in a modern country that this is even still a question, that women don't have the right to do, to have control of their own bodies. What it reminds us is that rights are very fragile. We have to be vigilant. So we have to be vigilant here in Canada as well to defend our right. But in Canada, in, in addition to defending the right, we have to be very vigilant to defend access to the right. 
which is really in peril in Canada, not just for rural or remote communities where it is very difficult to access abortion services, but there are provinces where even major cities don't have sufficient access to services. So that's really our major concern right now in, in Canada is making sure we have access to the right and we have to remain always vigilant to protect these fundamental freedoms. Since the Supreme Court of Canada's decision came down many years ago now, decades ago now, there's there has been no legislation in place to try and codify this. Um, is it time for that to happen? Or if not, why not? Our, our laws are quite different and our courts are quite different. We don't have the same politicized court system where there is a politiza- politization uh, of the Supreme Court. So our decisions and our, our jurisprudence is quite stable. The ruling worked into section seven of the charter so uh, a liberty of of our person of our bodies it so it's a very strong decision and the right is strong uh so i am very confident that the right is well protected in canada we could always look at other ways to strengthen it uh but my focus really in canada would be on access to the right that's where we're seeing more challenges where uh, a city like fredericton in new brunswick the services that were provided at one of the only clinics providing it were not funded by the provincial government as they should be under the Canada Health Act. Those are some of the areas where we want to see the federal government step up and use the levers in the Canada Health Act to make sure provinces are delivering that type of service and making sure that there's more access across the country. One of the reasons why we said with our Pharmacare plan that we've obtained in the agreement, why we're proposing to start with emergency uh, birth control uh, emergency uh, and medication is that would be uh, plan B access and make that free, make that accessible. That would be a tool to provide better access for, for women and for people to, to be able to access that type of service. So those are some of the things that we should focus on in Canada. Uh, the right though remains very strong. Um, you do have the ear of the government these days, thanks to your supply and confidence agreement. Uh, what would you propose be done to try and pressure the provinces? Healthcare obviously is a provincial jurisdiction, but what would you propose be done to try to make sure that that access is improved in places where it is not uh, as good as it could be? So, so one concretely would be uh, when we start with our pharmacare uh, plan and the and the framework that we've included in the agreement. So, taking steps forward on pharmacare would be to cover things like the Plan B uh, pill. And make sure that's free and that's accessible to everyone in the country. That would be one concrete step to increase accessibility. The second, um, and, and also equally very important, is that we have tools with the Canada Health Act to put levers on provinces that aren't delivering the care that they should be. Uh, there's extreme steps as well as with withholding financing in total. But uh, we don't need to even go to that point. There's other tools that could be applied that would lever or put pressure on provinces to deliver the care that they should be. So the example that we've given, uh, the Fredericton example, where there was a clinic, uh, I visited that clinic, it was receiving funding, it was cut off, and that funding was not uh, reestablished, and it threatened that this clinic would no longer be able to continue. That's an example of where the federal government could put more pressure on the province to reinstate that funding. I know you're headed, uh, you'll be in Nova Scotia. There's been a lot of talk this week about uh, things unfolding in Nova Scotia, some evidence presented at the Mass Casualty Commission regarding if or if not, uh, whether pressure was placed on uh, RCMP at H Division in Nova Scotia regarding um, gun legislation just after the uh, horrific shootings in 2020. Uh, you, you had some pretty strong words about that. What would you like to see done? What? How do we get to the bottom of this one, do you think? 
Well, it would, it is appalling to Canadians that something as horrible as the mass shooting, which is the worst mass shooting in Canada's history, was used for a political means. We want gun control to be based on evidence, based on keeping Canadians safer, not as a political wedge and not as something that is being politicized by parties. That, that just should not happen. There's no, there's no question. I feel almost... Uh, it's absurd that I'm even saying the words that that uh, the worst mass shooting in Canada should not be used as a as a political tool to wedge and bring in gun control over a, a, a politicized wedge. So that's something that Canadians want to know. If there was interference, uh, did it happen? How did it happen? Why did it happen? Who, who's under whose direction? Uh, if it did happen, under whose direction did it happen? These are all questions that that need to be answered. Canadians ought to know and have a right to know. And uh, given the uh, mounting evidence that the, that the RCMP commissioner who's raised this allegation is someone who's quite credible, and there's a lot of evidence to support or a lot of witnesses that have come forward to, to, to reinforce his credibility, it just enhances the intensity of this question. So we want to see answers. We want to see this government held to account and find out what actually happened. Do you buy the, the what you've heard so far from the Prime Minister, from Minister Bill Blair, from Marco Mendocino, from the Commissioner of the RCMP herself? Do you buy uh, how they've framed this so far as sort of uh, either he misinterpreted, uh, Superintendent uh, in, in Nova Scotia either misinterpreted this? Do you, do you buy those or do you feel like we very much need to get to the bottom of this? Are there questions that haven't been answered yet, do you think? I think at this point, it's pretty clear that there's questions that haven't been answered. And the contradiction of the two stories really leads Canadians to the point that, well, we need to know exactly what happened and, and really to make it clear that Canadians do not want to see something like a horrific mass shooting be used as a political tool. It, sh- it should not be that. And it really raises suspicion for, for legal gun owners. And, and that's not what we want. We want people to have trust and faith in the institutions and the decisions that are being made to keep Canadians safe. We don't want people uh, who are suspicious if, if things are being done as political wedge, uh, and it should not be when it comes to something as serious as gun control and as something as serious as the mass shooting that happened in Nova Scotia. This Liberal government's often been accused of using certain hot-button topics such as gun control and abortion as wedge issues. Do you see that? Do you worry that this government that you've uh, entered into the supply agree- confidence and supply agreement with uh, does divide and conquer at times or does divide and rule at times, and this may be another example of it? Well, wedges are, are, are happen in politics when there's a difference of opinion, but it shouldn't be on things that that are that are very clearly unifying points. Uh, public health, for example, was something I was quite disappointed when both conservatives and liberals, frankly, were trying to wedge over public health. Wearing a mask and getting vaccinated are not politically affiliated positions. They are public safety and universally accepted as or universally supported by healthcare professionals as healthy measures, as measures taken to keep people safe. So those are the things that I, I, I really disturb it whenever they're made into a political wedge because they should not be. That's just following the best advice from, from scientists and people who have looked at the evidence. And that's what I want to encourage. Uh, I, I also am concerned when things are done just for uh, just for the noise or just to make a point as opposed to actually making a concrete difference. Uh, gun control should be done in a way that keeps Canadians safer, not as a way to support points, 
And the right to an abortion should be about making sure women and people that need access have access to the services, not as a as a, a point to be made or a rhetorical point, but really it should be about making sure people in this country can access the services if they need it. And, and that's where my focus would be. I'm speaking with Jugmeet Singh this half hour. He, of course, is the leader of the federal NDP. Uh, we've been talking about the Roe v. Wade decision in the U.S. today, access to abortion in this country, as well as allegations uh, that the Liberal government put undue pressure on the RCMP commissioner, who then put that pressure on the RCMP to disclose the kinds of weapons used in that mass shooting in Nova Scotia in 2020 as a way of forwarding their gun uh, control policies. Um, uh, Jugmeet, how, is the, how has this confidence and supply agreement worked so far. And when you see situations like the allegations over the RCMP situation, is there a time where you think mm, that might, this might be the time to bail out of this? The uh, confidence and supply agreement is going well. The, the goal of this agreement was to use our power to get some help for Canadians. And starting this year, the two concrete pieces that we've been able to secure are an increase to the Canadian housing benefit of $500 to go to about a million Canadian families that need help with their rent or their housing. And the second uh, key victory for Canadians and for people across the country is the dental program, which will be kids 12 and under will be able to get their teeth looked after for free. Those two have been committed to, money is in the budget, and so it's been allocated, and we are working on the delivery program. So this is gonna happen before the end of the year. In exchange, we knew that up front we would have to support certain legislation that we already supported, but to help passage of that legislation. Uh, so we did that. Those are bills that we supported and we allowed for quick passage. And we continued to provide stability in a time when people are dealing with the cost of living going up and a war in Ukraine that makes all of us feel a little less safe. So in that sense, this is a, an agreement that is going well for Canadians. We're getting them the help they need. But we remain an independent opposition party so we can call witnesses in committee, call out uh, the mistakes of this government, use the pressure that we have, the tools that we have to highlight things like the allegations against the government in terms of interference in the RZMP investigation and use the parliament to bring forward witnesses to find out what actually happened. So nothing in the deal precludes us from being able to hold the government to account. In fact, we expressly included language that says, we are an opposition party, we will be voting against government bills, and we are prepared to hold the government to account, and we can continue to do that. At some point, if the government doesn't deliver on what they promised, we're prepared to pull our support. But right now, we are very confident that Canadians will get help, and that help was only achieved because we made it happen in this agreement. Is that trade-off, though, worth it if you're dealing with a government that appears to be at times ethically challenged? Is the trade-off worth it for the NDP? Well, if the government is ethically making mistakes, uh, those will come forward. We will use all the tools we have to expose those and let Canadians know about them and make sure that that is front and center. Uh, what we know is that Canadians elected two minority governments in a row, and they elected us to work together. They didn't elect us to before even a year uh, before after the last election to then cause another election. But they want us to hold governments to account. So we'll use the tools we have in this minority government, which gives us significant tools. We've got the majority on committees. We can vote in a way that, that holds the government to account. The, governments can't, the government can't overrule witnesses that we want to call. They can't vote against uh, decisions we make for accountability in committee using their majority because they don't have one. So in fact, we're in a very good position to hold the government to account and make sure that they 
uh, come clean on what happened, and then Canadians can make their choice around uh, their impressions of this government. Uh, before I let you go, I want to talk about civility and politics. I noticed you had your daughter Anhad in uh, in Parliament the other day, and uh, you're a family man now with a young family. There's been some uh, unfortunate incidents, some ugly incidents involving you, or at least one in the past few months. How has this been for the last three months? Are you noticing a change in the civility in politics that is that is disturbing? I mean, just for you personally, has it been a tough uh, tough little while? Well, I've I've always noticed uh, challenges. Um, based on, I guess, the way I look and who I am, and I've, I've had challenges. Uh, but I would say, by and large, uh, Canadians are folks that care about one another, want to make sure their neighbours are better off. I've seen lots of, of great examples of good citizenship, and, and I travel across the country, often with my family, and we've received lots of positive reception and uh, really warm people that have come up and, and shared their stories and talked about how the work we're doing is helping them. So by and large, I feel like Canada has shown a great example of a country where uh, political leaders can can walk around and, and be in public. But what I am seeing that's disturbing, uh, some of the examples that you alluded to, what happened in Peterborough was, was very intense. Uh, I've experienced worse in my life, but politically it was one of the most intense, the most intense experience a lot of anger, a lot of swearing, a lot of aggression, uh, and, and veiled threats of violence. Uh, that to me is very troubling because while I was comfortable in that sitting, I'm a trained martial artist, I uh, weigh 200 pounds, workout lots. Uh, that should not be the criteria. Someone shouldn't have to be a trained martial artist who's gone through lots of violent situations in their life to qualify as being able to be in public because there's such tension and aggression. Though it's a minority, what I'm noticing is there's a difference between, between people saying we disagree with your decisions, pro- protesting a government policy or a vote on a particular bill, and just uh, an aggressive anger, burn it all down, you know, you should die, and, and, the, and the violence and aggression that some small communities or small groups of people are doing are bringing forward. That to me is troubling, and it shouldn't be that people are afraid, and I'm worried about racialized people, women people from already vulnerable communities that are now looking at politics and thinking, you know what, it's not for me. It looks too scary and there's too much at stake if you have to go out in public. That to me is troubling and I, and I don't want to see that continue. Jagmeet Singh, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Like most kids who grew up in the 80s, I spent a fair amount of time at the shopping mall. It wasn't. I grew up in Montreal, so there wasn't a shopping mall right near us, but man, I used to like to go to one when we could. There were some downtown, but those suburban shopping malls, those are always the really cool ones because they were massive. They're the kinds of ones you saw in movies, you know, Fast Times at Ridgewood High or any number of things. Uh, But for decades, of course, the shopping mall was the focal point of a lot of that activity. It stole from the high street. It sort of replaced a lot of high street businesses. Well, now it's the mall itself that finds itself endangered as consumers kind of quickly move away from a lot of the bricks and mortar towards an ever more efficient online shopping universe. Consider this stat. Foot traffic in Canada's top 10 malls was down 42% in February 2020. 42% compared to a year earlier. That was before the pandemic. So if many malls are starting to lose their principal appeal, shopping, now seems like the ideal time to rethink what that space could be used for. And instead of tearing it down, which is environmentally not great, it can be made 
to better meet the needs of the individual communities and the people who live there. Well, joining me now is Andrew Galici. He's design director at the lifestyle studio and architectural firm Gensler in Toronto and author of Make Malls That Matter. Canada's dead and dying shopping centers are ideal sites to house much needed community services, which appears in the July edition of McLean's magazine. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for having me here, Ben. So this is clearly a solution where there is a problem. We've really seen a big shift uh, in the way that shopping malls have succeeded and operated. Uh, what was the inspiration for, for this suggestion of yours that we look at these structures in a different way? I don't know if it's so much a problem as it is kind of a recalibration. I think, you know, it's interesting. I've been a retail design director for around 30 years this year. And, you know, what I started to say probably around five years ago was the amount of shift that I saw happening in the market in a small handful of years of late is was seismic compared to, you know, the first 25 years of my career. And then all of a sudden you throw the pandemic into the mix. And I think, you know, what's happened in the last two and a half years is even more incredible. So I think really it's just an understanding that people will not use space the same. People will not shop the same. And, and you know, it's time to change. And, and I think, you know, a lot of larger institutions are cautious at at the rate at which they change. And as such, I think, you know, we're overdue. We were probably overdue five to 10 years ago. And so now we're fundamentally overdue. And so I just kind of went on an opinionated rant. Which is great, because I think it's probably very necessary. Uh, We've certainly seen in the US, these sort of abandoned malls, you can watch them on YouTube and so on. I don't feel like we have the same issue here yet. But it feels like it is something, and you point this out, it is something that we can get ahead of. Yeah, and I don't know that we have the same uh, degree, the same kind of scary degree as the U.S. as well. I I would agree with that. But there are certain suburban markets. You know, I remember reading a stat years ago that I think London, Ontario had per capita the largest amount of shopping centers for, um, I don't know if it was a North American city or a Canadian-based city, and I don't even know if this is true anymore, but if, if in fact that was true, I'm guessing there are probably centers in our own market that need some re-exploration. And, you know, part of the thought process of mine is that it's not one size fits all. It's not that kind of solution. It's really how do you start to look at what a specific community needs? What are some of the gaps in that community? And how can, if not the shopping center itself, the space that the shopping mall occupies start to help fill in some of those gaps? I found that really interesting because one of the things that's most remarkable about shopping malls in general is they tend to be the same wherever you go. You can go, you you mentioned in your article that you worked in Dubai. I've been to malls in Dubai. You could pretty much walk into a mall and you could be anywhere in the world. And this is a very different approach to it. This is saying, what does your community need and how can that space uh, help provide that? And how would that work? Well, so I think what's interesting, I'm going to step back for a second and say, you know, our company, I'm fortunate enough to work for a company that's large enough that undertakes a lot of research. And so, you know, we have this thing called the Experience Index that Gensler uh, put out several years back. And it's pretty universal in its truth in that people are not uh, singular in, in modality. So like people, people don't do one thing in one place. Um, it really kind of identified that 
Um, as people, we want to achieve a lot of different things in an efficient kind of way. I will pair with that. Um, years ago, as a retail designer, we always looked at demographics. And these were kind of gender, age. And years ago, that became irrelevant. Then we looked to psychographics. And we said, no, it's more about a personality type. I'm actually getting somewhere with this, I hope. Uh, and, and now we look at the fact and we say, well, so even psychographics are irrelevant because I, as a 53-year-old male, can be 20 people in a day, depending on my mood, depending on where I need to go at a specific time. So I think what I'm trying to say is we acknowledge that space needs to fulfill a larger function. And shopping malls, as large spaces, um, have very, for a very long time, fulfilled one one part of an equation in life, it's shopping. And you know, I'd say that years ago, developers started to get far more savvy. And I'm not saying that they aren't successful to a degree. I think developers started to realize that consumers were looking for greater experiences within space. And so, you know, expanded and, you know, what used to be a food court became like a whole food market. And, and you know, they added on and then, you know, Entertainment. I, I in my career, I've probably done around thirty movie theaters, in, in a very compressed amount of time in the nineties, nineties to the early two thousands, and um, you know that was another aspect. We we tacked on entertainment in a larger, but all of this is still not necessarily responding to what other, you know, what communities and what people's needs are beyond commercial and kind of entertainment needs. So, you know, the notion of healthcare, the notion of escapism, sure, people can escape to a mall, but I mean, the idea of providing green space and biophilic space, that what the education, I mean, you know, I, I think what um, Cadillac Fairview did at the Toronto Eaton Centre by kind of having a, a portion of the Ryerson campus on, on, um, on the mall property is, is spot on. So how can these large uh, spaces across our country start to redefine and recalibrate in their formula of of attributed space to different functions beyond just shopping and entertainment. My guest this half hour is Andrew Galici. He's the design director in the lifestyle studio at architectural firm Gensler in Toronto. He's also just written an article for the July edition of McLean's magazine, The Big Idea, and the big idea is make malls that matter, how to reimagine what we've always pictured as a place to go shopping is something much more, uh, a place to go perhaps see entertainment is something much more. Um, it, it certainly makes sense, I would think, Andrew, not to tear these buildings down, but to repurpose them, to imagine them as something uh, different or to add to them, to add to what's already there instead of just destroying the building and building something else. Why would that be? Well, I think just from an environmental perspective, um, when you look at construction, concrete the creation and, and the use of concrete is such a carbon intensive material that if all of a sudden we're starting to tear down all these buildings, like it, it just, it's just not environmentally sensible. So I think the whole kind of adaptive reuse of space is really, um, is really far more responsible to our communities, to our world. Uh, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, the mall's not going away. 
you know, what I loved as a retail designer, everyone said probably around 15 years ago when online shopping kind of kicked in, they were like, oh, stores are going to die. Stores are never going to die. I mean, there's a huge social aspect to shopping. And I think that's very much going to kind of expand. And, and what we're talking about here is really creating a much more diversified and kind of um, multi-layered experience that will just fuel that whole need for kind of uh, or, or fuel the whole kind of a hub for social kind of activity. So stores are not going to go away. And as a result, the structures don't need to go. I just think that maybe what we're talking about is right sizing, where do the malls need to be as large as they've been? I, I think, you know, what's always been interesting, if we think about who the cross-section of tenants have become over the last few years, because I've been in this business a long time, I, I sadly look at the roster of the Canadian clients I've had through my 30-year career, and many of them are gone. You know, many of them were either bought out by American companies or folded under, you know, the competition of huge American brands that come up. And I think America looked, you know, America's retail expansion into Canada years ago was like, oh, huge new territory. But, you know, Canada, by comparison in size to the U.S. is like, sure, volumetrically we're huge, but population wise, we're tiny. We're one tenth of their population. So they don't necessarily generate tons of revenue out of us. And, and this whole kind of build more, grow more, doesn't necessarily work for us. So, you know, here you have a lot of malls. COVID kind of pushed a lot of companies out of business, and we see tons of vacancies on high streets in malls. And I don't think this is about us coming back and saying, okay, who are we going to fill all this space with? I think it really is. How large do retail operations need to be? How many stores do you need in a mall? Like, what does... What does selection look like for people? Do we need to absolutely have like a million stores in a similar vein or, you know, is 75 going to be okay? So I think you start to look at that and you start to understand there's a lot of space that's on the table for redemise and repurposing. I imagine it would also, though, take a shift in mindset from those not in the retail business to see what they believe to be a shopping mall instead of just a place to go shopping also is an opportunity for them as well. Who would you need to bring into this equation for it to work? So what I think is interesting is I think you need subject matter experts. And when I say that, I go back to the fact that this is no longer a mall. This is a community hub of which mall and shopping is one, one portion of it. I think the retail landlord is a key, like they own the property. They're not going anywhere, but I also think they have worked incredibly well on successful business plans and on business models that have worked. So they need to stay at the table, but I think we need to diversify the representation at the table so that the communities that these malls are sitting in have a greater voice. Uh, you know, I think the idea here is not that we're kind of just augmenting and creating a new gratuitous experience, I think for us to really create meaningful change, we need to have people represented at the table that not only start to um, specialize in the disciplines we're talking about, you know, whether it's cultural center, whether it's education, whether it's, you know, library, whether it is, uh, you know, park and outdoor or kind of indoor garden, but also the community members at large. 
So whether it's local council, whether whether you start to craft and put together a, a community representation group that starts to feed into this conversation so that we can actually really check some meaningful boxes off for that, you know, that represent need in those specific communities. Now, I'm also going to be a hypocrite in that uh, as a designer, um, I believe in the benevolent dictator. So I do appreciate the danger of, of kind of embarking on this journey where I never think design by committee works. I think you get too many people, you have too few opinions and kind of one kind of passive kind of direction. I, I think, you know, what malls have done well is they've kind of been led by very small groups and with clarity of intention. So I think all of that needs to remain somewhat intact. I think we're just crafting a whole new formula in a way of working. And, um, I, and I think, yeah. you know, sorry. I'm, no, and right. I think what's important about that is it really is about, you know, it starts to fill in some of this whole diversity and inclusion discussion that we're talking about, because it's not just about social need, but it's also about making sure that we're representing the diverse populations that are living in these areas. Because I think for too long, we haven't done that. So I'm trying to imagine the mall of the future as you see it. Um, and then, and then how the revenue would work. I only have a few minutes left. I know that's a big question, but uh, 10 years from now, what, what does this, what does this mall look like in any, any given community? And, and just how is it, how is the, the revenue working for the owners of said, said property? So <laughs> you're getting one, me in the last couple, you're getting me in the last couple of minutes. Um, Okay, so take your I'm time. Not, take your time. <laughs> I'm a savvy designer, and because I've I've focused on retail, I've always understood that I need I I have designed and my teams have designed to ensure my that my clients can go home and sleep at night. So you know I've clearly responded to business need without necessarily being a business person. It's a complicated formula. I, I think you know it's just going to require. This is part of the reinvention. I mean. You know, healthcare generates revenue in its way, whether it's private or, you know, even, you know, governmental education, the same. Um, I don't know what it looks like yet, but but I have every confidence that we can create and rewrite a um, a business formula so that these uh, centers can reinvent and still generate a lot of revenue for for not only developer, but for community. And also stay standing, which is, as you pointed out, something that uh, reimagining how this space can be better used. Andrew Galici, thank you so much for your time. It's a fascinating idea. And I look forward to uh, catching up with you again to uh, see where we're at. Thank you very much, Ben. Well, this month, June, marks 50 years since one of the most vivid and shocking images of the Vietnam War of any war was captured. You probably know it. It's a black and white photo. It shows nine-year-old Kim Phuc Van Thi running down a road outside her village in Vietnam. She's naked and badly burned in a napalm attack. Her face is a portrait of pain, confusion, and fear. It's a face you'll never forget if you've seen that photo. She would become known simply as Napalm Girl. That photo was seen right around the world and caused shock right around the world, specifically in the United States. 
Well, Kim survived. She was helped to the hospital by the Associated Press photographer who took that picture. She spent 14 months in hospital. She recovered. She only ever saw that image for the first time when she returned home after that. Many years later in 1992, Kim immigrated to this country. She still lives in the Toronto area where she continues to run something called the Kim Foundation International, a charity that provides aid to children of war as she once was. And to mark a half century since that photo was taken, Kim, now a mom and a grandmother, is once again calling attention to the pain and suffering that kids endure when they're caught up in the horrors of war. And Kim Fook Van Tee joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Why did you feel it was important uh, on the 50th anniversary to once again um, talk talk to people about what you lived through and, and talk to to kids out there, because there are, as we know now, and we have seen even since 1972, there are always new children who are victims of war, survivors of war. Um, Why do you still feel it's important to share your story? Um, I think it's so important to continue to share my story. Um, And then uh, because that kind of education, and we have to work together to to work towards peace because I believe that peace is not happen by accident. We have to work on that. And so about my image, even, you know, like 50 years ago, it's exactly what happened to me then. And now is the, the, the history repeat and be honest my mom and myself, we cry. We cry seeing the first day I heard about the news. And because we have been there, we understand how hopeless, how pain and hurt, destroy, killing, how horrible war it is. And be honest, my heart is broken. For all the children, all the people who lost their life. Do you still find it difficult to see images of kids caught up in war? Of course. It's because we are human beings. We are human beings. We as a father, mother, and grandparents. And that is how we can let the children suffer like that. Even myself, looking at that picture is is where I came from, I couldn't believe it. That is a, that's why my picture is a big impact to the people who in that generation and then right now even they still, you know, talking about my picture because of the horror of war. Yeah, it's been 50 years since that photo was taken. I know that you struggled for a long time to come to terms with that image. Uh, Tell me about about the first time you saw that picture. Well, the first time I saw that picture, when I came home from the hospital after 14 months, my father showed my picture. Here is your picture, Kim. And I look at that. I said, what? Why he took my picture? The moment that I was so agony, ugly, naked, 
I was a little child. I, lo- I was a little girl. I feel so ashamed, you know. And, and uh, why, he, why he printed that picture? Why he took my picture when I was naked while my brothers and my cousin with clothes on? Does everyone understand my pain? And I just detesting that picture. Now you, I understand that, that you, you, it took you a very long time to come to terms with, with that, with that image that it really had a huge impact on your life as well as what happened to you. Just having that photo be so recognized was also very difficult for you. Yes. Yes. It's taken a long time. <laughs> Growing up. Um, yeah. People just talking about that picture, but I never, I, I never wanted to see that picture. Yeah. Myself. And um, Wow. When did that? Sorry, go ahead. Go, go ahead. When did that? When did when did that change? When did that? How did that change? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Until I was in Canada, Toronto, I have freedom, and I became a mother. And then when uh, I hold my baby Thomas. And I looked that picture because at that time the journalists they they uh, they're looking for me and they they catch my image in Toronto, you know, and then that's why I I I look at that picture, and then the moment it moved me to the point that yes. I don't want to see or I don't how I can, you know, allow my baby suffer like that little girl in, in the picture. It's just me. The mother had to do something the best of my life I can do, uh, protect the baby and, and, and educate the baby, whatever I can do as a mother. And not only just my own baby, but the children over the world. And that moment, I realized that, wow, now I have a freedom. I have a choice. And if that picture not let me go, so I have a choice. You know, before that picture taken, I had no choice. But right now, I have a choice to make it. And so uh, with that old thought, and I say, okay, I embrace it. I wanted to go back to work with that picture for good, for peace. And that is became powerful gift for me to work for peace. And that moment changed my mind, changed my attitude, changed my point of view from that picture. Wow. I say, yes, that picture, I will tell people how horrible it is. But I continue to talk with people is how beautiful world can be. If everyone can learn 
to live with love, with hope, and forgiveness. And if everyone can learn to live like that, so we don't need war. And the challenges to everyone is if that little girl can do that, so everyone can do it too. You you don't have to wait until you are somebody and do something. It seems like too late. You just be yourself, be a blessing. And that moment, wow, change completely. How now I'm so happy to embrace that picture and I continue to fulfill my dream as I want to help children through the Kim Foundation International. And through all my work as a UNESCO Goodwin Ambassador, I talk about peace. I, I move on and even I, you know, facing with all the challenges, but I have a goal. I have a purpose of my life. Seems that is a really help. I'm speaking with Kim Phuc Van Tee, uh, just outside Toronto. You may know uh, her image. It's perhaps one of the most known war images uh, photos ever taken back in Vietnam in 1972 of a young girl running, uh, scared, um, naked down a road. Uh, 50 years later, uh, Kim Phuc Van Tee is, uh, is a Canadian. Uh, lives outside Toronto, has been since 1992, and has taken that picture uh, and taken her pain that it represented both physically and emotionally, and then turned it into something positive, which uh, which is in of itself a remarkable thing to have done, Kim. Um, I know you still live with the pain of that day. Those scars never healed for you, did they? Uh, yes. Um, unfortunately, Yes, I still have that pain, but it's a miracle that happened uh, four or five years ago. Um, I have um, uh, received the laser treatment from Dr. Jill Weibel in Miami, and she uh, she did uh, very good on my scars. And um, now, with the scale from zero to ten. Uh, I used to have like eight, nine, ten. Yeah, very often. Wow. But now after this, I just still have four, five, three. So that for me is a miracle. And honestly, just this morning, she called me and she offered another treatment next week. <laughs> so, uh uh, yes, um, she's great. And so she wants to celebrate my life uh, for 50 years, uh, 50th anniversary of my picture. And at the same time, she gave me another treatment. And I hope that is, uh, it will help me to ease my pain as much as uh, we can do. Yeah. You still speak with the man who took that photo, the man who drove you to hospital that day, Nikut. Oh, yes. He became a part of my family. I call him Uncle Ut because I learned that after he took my picture and then he put down his camera and he rushed me to the nearest hospital and that he saved my life. I owe him. And uh, he, uh, you know, wonderful. I realized that well, the photographer, they just do their job, taking the picture, but then he did extra mile and he has 
you know, responsible for his picture. And, uh, and that's why I say, wow, that is just, I'm so grateful uh, to be alive and to tell him, I'm so thank you, Uncle Wood, for you, uh, for taking my picture. Of course, beginning, I didn't like it. I hated that picture. But later on, you see, um, now I embrace it. And uh, that picture became a powerful gift for me. And uh, he's so happy for that. Kim, when you look at the way the world is today, are you, are you encouraged by what's happened over the last 50 years? Or do you sometimes feel discouraged about how perhaps how little has changed since that horrific day in, of June the 8th, 1972? Yes, I uh, really discouraged. Yes. I'm so sad for that is people not learning and uh, continue to cause to bring other people suffering. I just uh, really, um, you know, I don't believe in war. I just working daily, moment by moment, for as I, I shared with you before, I just wish my dream that everyone can learn to love hope. It's so how beautiful the world it is. And that's why reading all the image of destroying people dying, children suffer, it just broke my heart imagine that it's um but through the work that you do with the kim foundation i imagine you at least believe and you must think that over the last decades that you have made a difference that that other children of war can learn from you or can at least understand that there is light at the end of the tunnel yeah i just wish and i hope that the children continue to uh, to 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 be helped and to learn, like through my Kim Foundation, I I I help uh, as much I can, like building the hospital, uh, building the school, building the uh, orphanage home and library for children. And those mission we continue uh, to do that, even is so hard for time to time. But I hope that children can have some benefit. And uh, my message as well, I just send it to them that hang on there and don't please, please don't give up hope. Uh, people around you uh, can help you. And then, you know, like I have been there. I understand what they need. Yeah. And um, so I wish that they can learn later on. To move on and uh, don't don't give up don't give up words inspiring words Kim Pukfenti thank you so much for your time tonight um, thank you for sharing your story 50 years it seems to I'm no, I have no doubt it's probably gone by very quickly as well in some ways uh, for you as well thank you so much for your time tonight oh thank you so much Ben